Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome back to our series on the second half of world history for podcast episode number 14. In episode 13, we looked at the age of nation states and how our modern countries of Italy and Germany ultimately landed on the map. While both were spectacular political revolutions in their own right, the work of Otto von Bismarck clearly, and hopefully through that episode, if you had listened to it, could clearly understand how Bismarck has gone down in world history, including all of the diplomats and politicians, prime ministers, presidents of the 20th century. Bismarck still goes down as arguably the world's greatest statesman, and in some cases, the world's greatest chess player, as he had played truly the game of chess in a way that no other world leader to date ever has, using human beings as real chess pieces, and the chess board was none other than the continent of Europe, a spectacular individual by every definition. So in this podcast, we're going to be looking at the predominance of what becomes known as European supremacy. With that 13th podcast, we saw again how three major countries landed on the map, Germany, unifying all the principalities along with Italy and then the formation of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. By this point, too, please remember that despite we haven't talked about it much in the last several podcasts, that remember that Europe is still gaining tremendously, both politically and in some cases militarily, but most importantly economically, with all of her overseas empires. The world truly is being gobbled up by a handful of European nations and the United States. Remember that in this time period that we're talking about here in the middle of the 1800s, that by the year 1800, 35% of all landed surface of the earth flew either a European or an American flag. That number is only continuing as time marches on. So in this episode, we're going to take a look at again how how Europe came to dominate the global trade and global influence. Part of it is going to be the fact that the way that they are running roughshod with industrialization. The railroads, as we talked about in prior podcasts, were continuing to spur economic expansion. It was The railroad itself was just such an unbelievable way to move massive amount of weights under considerably minimal amount of real estate. Remember, too, that despite their massive weight, railroads by and large are able to operate primarily because the contact of the train wheels on the actual rails themselves covers a surface of no larger than an American dime form of currency or American monetary system, the change we carry in our pockets that being the size of a dime. It is literally that small. That's why so much weight 
can move with such little effort. So therefore, we just continue to rack those cars up, making eventually what will be exceeding mile-long trains. Industrialization was also pushing out different commodities. The first phase of the Industrial Revolution was producing textiles, steam, and iron. This time now, they're continuing to produce those products, but in different ways. Steel, chemical compounds, and eventually plastics are going to dominate industrialization of Europe. Electricity was also significantly impacting production. With electricity and the ability to establish power plants literally wherever humans needed them, our reliance on Mother Nature for energy plummeted. And that's an important aspect because, again, our locations, industrial locations, no longer had to be located near prime natural resources. We truly could put factories and industry out in the middle of nowhere. Out of this change and improvements, Daimler would come out with, to where most historians agree, patenting, putting a patent on the car or what we would call today the automobile with an internal combustion engine powering four wheels. Occasionally students will ask me, well, what about the role of Henry Ford and Walter Chrysler, Ransom Olds and Jimmy and Billy Durant? All of those automobile pioneers are going to be have significant accomplishments. Henry Ford, however, did not produce the automobile. He, he did not invent it. Rather, what he did is streamline the process in order to be able to produce cars with interchangeable parts and producing them on what will become known as an assembly line that will allow him to push off units literally per minute rather than how many cars that might be produced per day. That doesn't also cloud the impact that the bicycle was also having on European travel. One could go further now on a largely lightweight economical mode of transportation. Women would thrive on the new mode of transportation as well. It was in some cases too, especially compared to the automobile, it was far less expensive. Within all of these production enhancements, we see the emergence of the white-collar worker with government workers, assistant, and aides, individuals that would be required to work on the assembly lines, work in industry, but yet they're not the hourly workers, but they're also not the entrepreneurs. It was the burgeoning middle class where the income was just enough to aspire for the finer things in life. All of these positive advancements, and clearly there is, of course, many, many others, but just summarizing here in our limited time in our podcast, city life would obviously start catching up in negative ways. In some countries with the larger populations now moving into the city, there would be demands for improved city design. Prior to this, there was no reason why an industry couldn't go right up next to a retail establishment, which also might be built right next to a couple of residential homes. Those would start changing now in the established cities with the requirement now of what we call zoning laws and building codes. Within the United States, we're familiar with those zoning laws because almost everybody in the United States lives in a zone improvement plan district. And for my listeners, especially those in the United States, scratching their heads saying, if I live in a zone improvement plan district, I have no idea what it is, much less what code is attached to it. You do. We just simply refer to it by the acronym, the ZIP code, Z-I-P. 
in the United States, those zip codes lay out how many areas are zoned as residential, zoned as retail, zoned as commercial, zoned as industrial, etc. This is the reason why, for example, in the zip code that I live in, that my wife, my kids, and I live in is zoned residential. So even if a major industrialist were to offer my wife and I five times the amount for our house because they want to put up a business of some sort, the transaction will not be confirmed because it's not zoned for any other land use other than residential. You might say, well, doesn't that hurt then our ability, the commoner's ability to raise money? It does. But you also have to look out for the common good of the others. Can you imagine what the property values would suddenly be for our neighbors on both sides of our houses, much less the ones across the street that now have to look at and deal with the traffic that's now developing around a business that wasn't there before? Their property values, therefore, would go down significantly, if not plummet. We also see the impact of the railways coming within the cities with subways being created, canals kept connecting waterways where there wasn't a connection before, suburbs and bedroom communities also developing. Now the transportation could be more affordable, the workers could live a little bit further away from the industrial town centers. Home and work life, as also discussed in the last podcast, would now become ever more separated, arguably never to go back together again in the way it was in the pre-industrial societies. In terms of females in the industrial age, how did they fare? In some cases, not well, as they still could not own property, and even some highly valued possessions also could never be certified or licensed to be able to be owned by a woman. Were there any breakthroughs? Well, starting in 1860, colleges and universities would start admitting women. Again, it's not a huge improvement, but it's better than where it was in pre-industrial society. They also still did not have the right to vote in most countries, which was no different than the United States. Men's fears there, who of course there were the male lawmakers, the concern was the role of the church, whether it be the Orthodox Church, whether it be the Protestant churches or the Roman Catholic churches, the concern was that a woman could not keep her faith separate from her political views. Now, if you happen to know where I live and work, please don't shoot the messenger. I'm just summarizing again, certainly don't agree with it, but I'm summarizing the arguments of why women were still not granted the right to vote in most countries and even up through the 1800s. In terms of Jews within European society, they did see somewhat in improvement in their lives. They were still uh, heavily discriminated in some countries, and there would still be random organized anti-Jewish activities, but by the record, there was less of these as the 1800s wore on. Sadly, of course, that would not be the case with the turn of the century into the, into the uh, 1900s. Finally, in terms of political life, what was going on as well as industrialization was continuing to improve and Europe was putting itself more and more matter-of-factly on the European and global map, food shortages and unemployment was still a problem. However, workers began to recognize that collectively their numbers made a difference in industrialization. There was now we begin to see some semblance or outline of some form of organization in order to mainstream their frustrations and concern.
Universal male suffrage was also widespread and accepted. Please note at this time, too, that Marxism was also making a positive impact. So we're seeing here that events that we might have studied in the 20th century that maybe prior to this podcast we thought only started in the 20th century, this proves that the tentacles of socialism, Marxism, the impacts both good and bad of industrialism go way back before the year 1900. I would like to end this on a relatively brief podcast by looking at our neighbor, European neighbor to the east, that being Russia. Because as time is going on and history books are continuing to be more and more revised, Russia in some cases is being left out of many world civilization and European textbooks. Whether it's thought that other types of history will cover it or include it, Russia plays a massive role in the 20th century. And I don't like, especially in the classroom, to suddenly talk about Russia's influence in World War I and especially in World War II, where students sometimes wonder, well, how did Russia happen to get that size to be able to play such a role on the world stage? It started in the 1800s with the birth of Bolshevism. Russia was a massive, and still to this day, is a huge landmass. And we talked about that in the prior podcast as well. The Russian czars recognized, which was the political entity of the time, that they needed to industrialize in order to stay competitive militarily, economically, and even politically. The concern was that capitalists in the Western world were earning and netting too much money as a result, even with significantly higher tax rates. Industrialists were, were earning too much money, according to the interpretation of the Russian czars and their advisors. Like many other parts of the industrialized world, in industrializing world, it didn't end there. Workers and laborers' living conditions were often dismal. It was difficult, if not impossible, to unionize. So Russia's problems with industrialization wasn't any different than any other part of the industrializing world. However, here's where Russia also had a problem that was more unique, I didn't say totally, but more unique to itself, and that was the farming methods along with the climate that made the ability of fewer farmers trying to work the land to feed an increasingly larger population. All of this was coming together to make life more and more difficult as time was going on and Russia attempted to keep up with the rest of the industrialized world as they marched into the future. This is where we begin to see the impact of certain Russian pioneers and philosophers into trying to stabilize Russian society and allow them to be able to stay competitive as they moved on into the future. Gregory Plekhanov, who lived from 1857 to 1918, was a Russian Marxist and philosopher who was exiled largely because of his views of socialism and his negative views of the Tsar family. He influenced individuals like Vladimir Lenin. Lenin, along with his brother, were also active socialists. However, Lenin's brother was arrested and executed in 1887 
supposedly was trying to sow plans to overthrow Russia's czar at the time, Alexander III. Lenin was very distraught. He was shaken to the core by his brother's execution, and he voluntarily withdrew to Switzerland where he studied law. Even though he was in Switzerland and physically not in Russia, didn't mean he didn't keep his stethoscope to the political and economic and industrial events that were continuing to unfold in his beloved country. He sympathized with outlawed social democrats who favored industrialization. And that's a point, again, I want to emphasize that socialism and Marxism are not anti-industrialists. Where they're anti is the massive disparity between the capitalist, the entrepreneur class, and the commoners or the laborers. Lenin started to push Plakhanov's ideas to forming an elite, highly secret organization of men to carry out social revolution inside Russia, to the point that Lenin influenced so many individuals that he gathered more and more supporters of his views. And in 1903, he won a slim majority in the representative body, to the point that as a majority, he then, according to the Russian term, was the Bolshevik party. And that's all Bolshevism means. Bolshevism means majority. Prior to that, they were the Menshevik party, which translated to English, Menshevik simply means minority. As this, these events unfolded in 1903 through to 1904, the commoners began to feel empowered as a result of Lenin's ideas and the support that he was gathering politically. In what became known as Bloody Sunday, January 22nd, 1905, where workers gathered together to write and present a list of industrial reforms and demanded that the czar at the time, who had been in office now for 11 years, Nicholas II, respond to the workers' demands. However, rather than respond to them, in a way that, of course, the commoners were hoping, Nicholas II ordered his troops to fire on the crowd, killing roughly 150 to 200 people, depending upon the sources that you trust. The Soviets, which were translated means worker groups, broke out and formed strikes and boycotts throughout areas of Russia, specifically in St. Petersburg. This through the military, Nicholas II was able to keep this rebellion down and future rebellions at a minimum. But because, again, of the unending work and the commitment of Vladimir Lenin to continue to push his socialist agenda, the discontent continued to boil within Russia. Vladimir Lenin would be looking for an opportunity to strike when he would have his chance to overthrow what would become Russia's last czar, Nicholas II, and his family. So in this episode, we looked again at how, Russia, at how Europe was continuing to influence more and more of its own peoples within the continent of Europe how Russia was also rising economically and politically, 
And we can then perhaps begin to understand why and how Europe was, your primary, primary European countries were still able to have a stranglehold on how many of their colonies and other continents around the world. All of this is setting up the agenda for us to eventually be able to move towards Europe lighting itself on the world map in a way that was stronger than ever before. Does that lead us then right at this point to World War I? Not necessarily, because there's one other way that Europe was also making inroads and impacting civilizations throughout the world, especially the United States. And it wasn't the power of European industrialization that was going to do it. Rather, it was the power and the influence of European thinking, which is what we'll turn to in the next podcast in our series on world on the second half of world history. Thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsola.com. Email me with any questions or comments you might have. If you liked what we discussed today, please leave me a review as well. Thank you again for listening. Have a great day.